Hello everyone, my name is Amanda Reyes and I am the editor and co-author of Are You in the House Alone? A TV Movie Compendium 1964-1999. I am also one of the hosts of the Made for TV Mayhem show where we do nothing but talk about TV movies. And I'm here with another TV movie lover named Sam Pancake. Sam, do you want to tell us about yourself? Hey everybody, uh, I'm Sam Pancake. Uh, I'm, I'm an actor in LA and sometimes in New York and a comedian you might say. And um, I also host a podcast about TV movies called Sam Pancake Presents the Monday Afternoon Movie, which we mostly concentrate on 70s, 80s TV horror movies. Yeah, and one of the things you did on your show that was so great and makes you such an important component to this commentary is you spent an entire season of your show talking about Animal Amok films from the 70s. Yes. I had a season call, called When Animals Attack, which we covered everything from the cat creature to the beasts are in the streets to devil dog colon hound of hell tarantulas there were so many i didn't get up to the 90s on i haven't got to the 90s yet much on my podcast and i was considering uh covering birds to uh land's end but i didn't get there and i'm, I'm happy to be able to watch it and talk about it today though yeah this is a really interesting film so i think we're gonna have to talk about the 70s animal amok movies to get to where we got to birds too there's a lot happening here because first of all we have a sequel to a classic film um we have a movie that uh, first premiered in 1994, but was not highly regarded then and is not highly regarded now. We're putting our cards on the table. This is a movie that's really struggled in terms of finding its audience. Um, but you're sitting here watching it. Hopefully you've enjoyed the film. We both enjoyed it. But it also is doing a lot of different things. One, it's paying homage in a way, not just to Hitchcock, but it's looking back at the TV movies of the 70s in a number of ways, and we will talk about that. It's also a movie that was made for pay cable. It aired on Showtime originally, and that makes it a really interesting film because in the early 90s, uh, pay cable was really getting into the act of made-for-TV movies as well as um, basic cable, and we will talk about that as well. So it's actually, if I dare say, it's historically important. Um, all of these films that came out for pay and basic cable in the early 90s are fascinating. A lot of them are very, very good. Um, and they mean something. And they were also feeding into the complete history that went up until about the end of the 90s. And then uh, the networks kind of started to die out at that point. And for me, that's sort of the end of the run of the original made for TV movie you yes. know, history. Yeah, the timeline. But um, I saw this movie when it originally aired um, oh, on Showtime. Really? Yeah, oh, on March cool. 19th. Yeah. And um, I remember really liking it. Uh, I I had obviously seen Birds. I was pretty young, so I don't think I'd had all the Hitchcock knowledge that I have now. Um, and I don't know right. that I was comparing the two. I think at the time I was just a voracious horror lover. And I was like, there's a horror movie on TV. I'm going to watch it. And, <laughs> and yes. what I re remembered most about it was um, the ending. Uh, and... And I just remembered liking it. And um, and it turns out years later, after I got to learn more about the made-for-TV movie, how much this is a really solid made-for-TV movie. Um, but I know, I think we should start with the 70s. So I know you grew up on TV movies much like I did. Um, yes. What do, what do you remember watching these Animal Muck movies in the 70s when you were a kid? Um, <clears throat> I remember uh, being more into movies that were 
um, like the cat creature or the curse of the black widow with Patty Duke and Donna Mills and the cat creature, which was with Meredith Baxter, Bernie, where women transformed into to mm. animals, which I found so fascinating. And those are my kind of favorite ones in that genre. If you want to count them as being in that genre, I didn't see things like tarantulas, the deadly cargo or the beasts are in the streets until recently for my podcast. But I was very fascinated in anything which was a female lead. And if that female lead in a supernatural way turns into an animal, I love it. I also saw Devil Dog Hound from Hell, like probably in the 80s. And it is deliciously, classically, kookily terrible. But I also highly recommend that. Speaking of animals amok. <laughs> That's a great one. That's a great one. I used to watch Tarantulas and Deadly Cargo like every week. It felt like it was on. That and Gargoyle seemed to like uh, yes, play constantly. Yeah, you know, when I was growing up. And I was obsessed with that film. I loved it. I Ants, I remember seeing as a kid, but it wasn't until I was older and I got the VHS of it that it became kind of a regular thing for oh, me. Oh, it's but... amazing. Yeah, it, Ants, Ants, exclamation point, also known as It Happened at Lakewood Manor. That's right. That's the original um, title. And, yes. Um, and so I guess, you know, in the 70s, it seemed almost more appropriate to have these kind of animal amok movies because it, environmentalism was a mm -hmm. really big thing. And it kind of and also in the 50s, in the atomic age, right? There was yes. um, these kind of monster or supersize. I'm going to quote Lee Gambin, who wrote a really great book um, called Massacred by Mother Nature. So Lee Gammon actually um, suggests that The Birds is the film that kind of brought the animal amok genre to where it is today. Um, and some stuff he talked about in his book that I find really uh, fascinating is that he suggested that The Birds essentially examines things that quote, Goan said between humans using the bird attacks to kind of express this. So yeah. The, yeah, the birds are, quote, a manifestation of what the characters aren't saying or doing, but also a response to what they are feeling. The violent attacks from the birds heighten those complex characteristics and physically embody the interior struggles of the film's human cast. So it's probably apropos that we're here at the one scene where we find out that this is a family struggling with the loss of a child. Right. Yes. The and, grief. Their son has died. Yeah. In a yeah. car accident. And the birds are a manifestation. Right. And so there's and I don't know if we'll get to it. We'll be on scene to point it out. But there's two moments and it's the first two bird attacks for Ted here, played by Brad Johnson, where <laughs> nobody yes. sees the attacks and and he just claims that they've happened. And there's this idea and I, we can talk about how the script came to be, but there's this idea that maybe they're playing with the idea that he might be an unreliable narrator, at least yes. at the beginning of the film. And maybe he's seeing these things because he's sort of on this verge, right? And not necessarily of madness. I don't think they're going there with this, but uh, the, his grief has taken him to the point where like these uh, things of self-harm maybe right. happening. Yes. Yeah. Like maybe he hit himself in the forehead after the bird attack happens. And this is also what happens a lot of the movies, the, 70s tv horror genre movies mostly with women though where something is happening and the woman keeps insisting it's happening and she's not believed but in this one we have the male hero who is going through it the 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 male lead and with the wife and everyone else the wife's sort of doubtful and kind of like what's up and then everyone in town not believing him so it's a switch in that way too 
Yeah. Oh, that's really fascinating that you brought that up because I, I hadn't thought of that. Yes, uh, TV movies are, are actually made for women, or at least they were in the 70s. Right. And I believe going into the 90s as well, the demographic was women aged 18 to 49. And um, and that was because women tended to be housewives. Of course, by the 90s, we saw kind of uh, the end of that. Well, that's also interesting because we're talking about paid cable here. And one of the things I was thinking about while I was putting my notes together is that when uh, the uh, TV movies of the 70s were being produced, they were being uh, produced for what we called broadcasting, meaning they cast a very broad net. Uh, so they tried to include all right. these elements into their movies because they were getting millions of people to watch only three channels. But then as yes. time passed, right, and we started right. to get, get pay and basic cable, it became what they now call narrow casting, which is almost what all television is. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so what's more interesting, or what's even more interesting, I should say, is that pay cable doesn't really have to deal with advertisers right so where where television really had to cater to what the advertisers wanted um right because they were putting their product they were paying for these things to be produced basically um pay cable only has to cater to the subscribers exactly yes and they can be more selective and also i want to talk a little bit about if i may about the birds the original movie which is sure the movie that i saw I, probably the first horror movie I saw as a kid on TV um, when it was rerunning, and I probably saw it too young because the children are attacked and viciously, the school children, um, by the birds in that movie. And I was fascinated and repulsed and horrified as I was meant to have been by Mr. Hitchcock. And it really, so the birds was like sparked my interest in horror movies, um, which I, you know, of course it was a full the theatrical release back in 63, I think, when it came out. And um, so, but I saw it on TV. So, you know, that kind of spurred my interest. And again, like what you're saying about, you were saying earlier about the tension, because I've rewatched The Birds so many times, and it's one of my favorites, and it's one of my favorite Hitchcocks. And it is, um, and it's one of those movies I check in with every five years to kind of compare how I've grown and changed. And I really noticed the last time I, I watched it, because we did a spoof of it called The Ducks, which is a whole other story on a, in a Zoom play that me and my friends did. And um, is the sexual tension between Rod Taylor and Tippi Hedren and all the the complex dynamics between him and the Jessica Tandy, his his sister, who's also kind of like a mother and also kind of in love with him and, and it all playing out through the birds not to mention the the ecological horror and in this one in birds too um first of all we were lucky to have tippy hedron come back and i felt like this some of the reviews of this is uh were not great and it didn't have a great reputation and i think part of that was because it was you know people are going to compare it to hitchcock and you're gonna you're not gonna win with that you know so when i watched it for the first time just yesterday i was pleasantly surprised especially by the actors like chelsea field is so good and so solid so is brad johnson who as you know was a i think a rodeo person and a firefighter and he was someone who wasn't setting out to be in to be an actor really until you got you know scouted as a model and was in commercials and i think he acquits himself really beautifully in this this role of a grieving father who's dealing with a bird attack and trying to protect his family and then we and tippy hedron is back and and some of the um material i read about this she some some who knows what to believe but some people you know some of it said like she 
had regretted being in it, but then, um, and she's not playing the same character, which was because she didn't, she, they didn't know if she was going to be it till the very last minute. So she's not playing, right. um, uh, Melanie from the birds, but she's, there she is. She's wonderful. She looks amazing. Um, I just love her and I think she's so great in this movie. I'm so glad she's graced this movie with her presence. <laughs> yeah, she was actually making another uh, Hitchcock uh, TV movie, um, Shadow of a Doubt, when uh, they called really? her for this. Yeah, oh, and wow. that's that's why she wasn't sure she could make it. And I think she had mixed feelings because, you know, she had mixed feelings about Hitchcock. And of course. I, and yes, so, yeah, looking. Abusive. Yeah, and so I think she credits him, of course, for the position she ended up in in her life but also at the same time there was a lot of friction and tension and you know things were tumultuous and mm, yeah yeah and so abusive uh, you know kind yeah. of emotionally abusive she did say that it was nostalgic and she enjoyed it but there were things that she so she tried to incorporate some of her own ideas into this and and she got vetoed almost at every turn she wanted to have it in 3d because they were showing a 3d version of the birds at universal in uh studios in florida oh man i wish i'd seen that yeah and she said it was amazing and um and so she said well let's do this in 3d well it's made for tv so that's unlikely so they said no she also wanted to incorporate because it was shot in north carolina she wanted it to, um to her to have a southern accent and yeah. she was told that uh, she didn't think the fans would take to it for whatever reason and she also didn't like that uh, once she uh consented to doing it that her part was as small as it was but one of the things she did talk about and most of my production notes actually center on this is how amazing the special effects were and um we'll get to that at the last third because this movie you goes got it yeah off the rails but <laughs> yes it does <laughs> it's an art form because they had so many people working from different people like who had worked on america wolf in london and blue velvet all met and on this one day, right, or whatever long it took to shoot the scene at the end on the dock, and they made what was really beautifully done. Um, total chaos reminds me of Jaws. It reminds me very much yes. of the birds, right? Yes, with the explosion and the gasoline. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but... I also want to point out, I read that this was somewhere, I read that this was the facade of this house, which is actually um, on near Southport, North Carolina, uh, is kind of a replica of the house in the original The Birds, where Jessica Tandy and Rod Taylor and Veronica Cartwright live. Yeah, it was. So the guy who did the art direction for this, um, he actually looked at an Andrew Wyeth painting. He, I'm sure The Birds was a heavy influence on him, yeah. but there's a painting called Christine's World. And, uh, Christine's World, yes, I'm very familiar. I love that painting. Yes, Andrew Wyeth, right? Yeah. And they and they he built the house and the little I don't know what you call that barn or whatever the shed that they have were yeah. modeled after that and um and I'm positive that the birds also came into play and it's one of the things that I didn't put in my notes but I've been thinking about uh, while I was putting these together is how much that this movie uh, is a remake of a Hitchcock film but it's also heavily steeped in gothic right because yes. it's about it's a melodrama which uh, plays into the gothic it's about um a family falling apart it's got a decaying house decay is huge in the gothic right manifestations yes. like the birds could be seen as a doppelganger you know what is good and what is evil um with grief right and so yes. like there's all of these things that are happening and and so when you're talking about um i don't remember what part you were saying but one of the things i was going to add was that i think Ooh, the reviews weren't very kind to it, but I think one of the things that people might take umbrage with, um, I'm okay with it because I watch a lot of TV movies, but you yeah. know, the the first real good bird attack doesn't actually happen until about 48 minutes in. 
Yeah, it takes a while, doesn't it? It's, yeah. yeah. And and yet it's not a mood piece leading up really to the attack. It's actually right. a family dealing with the loss of a child. And it's not playing around with a lot of imagery. We only have that one dream sequence. And nothing yeah. else is really, like, made surreal or strange. It's all very, like, straight-faced. Yeah, it's like the, the first attack of the of the guy out on the boat who was the first one attacked by the gull and gets his eyes pecked out, as we find later. And then... Yeah, the rest of it could be almost a touchstone comedy about a, not comedy, but a touchstone light melodrama about a family and their dog on an island. <laughs> yeah. And and so it's almost like these two different films happening at once. And so I, I can sort of see where, like, it's hard because, you know, Rick Rosenthal, who took his name off the film and became Alan Smithy. Um, yes, yeah. Alan Smithy. Wow, that's yeah. a whole other topic. <laughs> he was really uh, upset with kind of how the film came out. But he even said when he, because he promoted the film pretty heavily before really? he got to the oh. point where he was unhappy with it. Yeah, with Fangoria and oh. Cinema Fantastic. And he said himself, he knew that it was going to be really hard to follow up on Hitchcock. And I think... Not just that, but Psycho 2 had already come out. And Psycho 2 was oh. amazing, right? And Yeah, and, yeah, I remember that. And so these follow-ups to the very few follow-ups to Hitchcock films not made by Hitchcock, you know, the legacy has already been set as like these kind of, uh, the bar was really high. And, yeah. and here we're like, okay, we're going to make a TV. I mean, a lot of people said that the birds... Uh, two was supposed to be theatrical. That's not true. Um, but it was. I was going to ask you. I was going to wonder. I was wondering if that was the case. Okay, good to know. All right. Yeah, it was marketed in movie theaters, though. So what happened was, so Showtime was really fledgling in 1994. I think the basic cable or the pay cable subscriptions, to give you a comparison, HBO had like close to 20 million subscribers, and I think Showtime had like seven. And so wait in 90. Wow. I yeah. would not have guessed that low. That's so interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so they were trying to figure out how can we get more viewers? Right. And so they started marketing their films in movie houses with these great trailers. And they started the year before with uh, body bags, which was the John Carpenter anthology film that Showtime. That's fantastic. And right. And, and then at the end it would say only on Showtime. And they did it with this as oh, well. Oh, the old bait and switch. It's like, yep. you can't see it in the theater. You gotta subscribe. Oh, yep. good for them. That's clever. <laughs> and then HBO, I think, ended up doing it with one of their films after. I believe that Showtime established that form of marketing. So I think that's where people got kind of confused as to whether or not it was a theatrical. And by the way, this is the first shot of like a bird cam coming in. Yeah. And yes. um, they did that with like a swinging crane. And, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and there's a, crane, a lot of... A metal crane, yeah, not a yeah, bird crane. <laughs> yeah, that would have been really cruel, and I wouldn't have been doing commentary for a film that did that. But, yes. you know, the cinematography is by a man named Bruce Surtees, whose name would be familiar if you watch pretty much any Clint Eastwood movie. Because yes. he shot them all. He did The Outlaw and Josie Wales, Pale Rider, Dirty Harry, Sudden Impact, Play Misty for Me, on and on. He shot Samuel Fuller's White Dog. Wow. He did Beverly Hills Cop. Christy McNichol, yeah. Yeah, he did Risky Business. Um, and he did Bad Boys, which was another Rick Rosenthal film, which starred Sean Penn. And, um, oh, I remember that one. Yeah, I've seen yeah, that Yeah, this was yeah. his first TV movie. And he was wow. Oscar nominated. He did Lenny, which was shot in black and white, of course. And his father was uh, Oscar winning cinematographer. He did The Bad and the Beautiful in King Solomon's Minds, among many, many other movies. But Surtees was known actually for, uh, for muted 
lighting and palettes and he was actually called the prince of darkness um, oh cool yeah the yeah. way he shot films and he actually talked about shooting the interior of the house so this movie is very technically speaking this movie is very meticulous um uh, the the work that went into creating so the house is actually a facade right we were talking about how it's based off a painting this house did not exist and it was actually built next to a parking garage in a marshland wow yeah and they shot around it and um, you'll see a graveyard later that they built for the set and they actually went to a place where they had a bunch of discarded gravestones where they made a spelling error or something and yeah. they rented them and that's how they built the graveyard. But, so that's what they do with with typo gravestones. Oh, yes, they wild. end up in the movies. And so, but Sirtes said he wanted the house to have a very warm look inside, which it does. And he used gold filters uh, to give this kind of summertime look. And they yeah. had to shoot outdoors, usually between 4 p.m. and 8.30 p.m., so that they could get this sort of warm light and shadows. Also, and, as an actor, I got to say, you're, you're going to look great in that light. And B, you can sleep in. I love those hours. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also very specific, right? You've got to set up your shots and you have to be ready between these certain hours yeah, every day. You have to get it. You do not have 50 takes. You got a yeah. couple takes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I don't know how long the production was of the film, but I do know that they wrote a 97 page script in something like three or four days, not script, um, outline. And then they wow. spent two and a half weeks writing the script. And that's also possibly why this movie has the flaws that it does as well, because it was a very short turnaround kind of for, rushed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for um, the Wheat brothers who were the two men who wrote this. And then a third writer came in. So Ken and Jim Wheat are like the king of sequels. They um oh wow that's wild I yeah they wrote that. the fly two they wrote Nightmare on Elm Street oh. four they wrote the Stafford Husbands which I covered on my podcast another nineties uh, TV movie delight uh, which I have a lot to say about listen to my podcast for yeah. that I won't go into it now but it's, well it's, we we yeah. may talk about this because this is you know making TV movie sequels to theatrical films isn't that uncommon. And yeah, the, all right. the Stafford sequels are made for TV. And yeah, the Revenge of the Stafford Wives, the Stafford Children from 87 with Barbara Eden and Don Murray, yeah. and then the Stafford Husbands, Donna Mills and Michael Antkeen, and Oscar Winner and Louise Fletcher and Cindy Williams. Yes. Yeah, and that's a really interesting <laughs> film, too, because, you know, you're talking about changing points of view. And yeah. And there we're taking it to the, from the men's point of view. And one of the most interesting things that the, uh, I call them the Wheat Brothers, but they don't go by that. They go by Ken and Jim Wheat. But one of the most interesting things that I think they do in that film is that there's this great scene at the end where Donna Mills realizes after she turns her husband, Stepfordish, um, yes. she regrets it because he's lost his creativity, right? He was a writer. And right, and she yes. took, and, and she, he's lost his soul. <laughs> yeah, and, and they actually comment on that in the film, and you don't necessarily get that kind of point of view from a man, right? Like this is what made him, and this is now this has been taken away, and and here I think what they're doing with uh, Ted is that they're giving him like a pretty sensitive role because we often see. So when I was when I was watching this and making notes, one of the movies that came to mind was uh, the remake of Death Takes a Holiday from 1972 with Myrna Loy and uh, Monty Markham and Yvette Momo. And one of the things about that film is that um, the mother, who's 
on, so death comes if you haven't seen it it death comes to this island and he comes to take a vet momo but it turns out he falls in love with her so he spends the weekend with her and nobody dies for like 48 hours and there's chaos all over the world because of it and then the parents realize uh oh you're coming for our daughter and the father won't have any of it but the mother had already lost a child they both had lost a child and she through the years had come to terms with that loss and it was interesting because it was the man struggling over the loss of the daughter more so than the woman not that the mom wanted her daughter to die but there was an understanding of the process of it for her and yeah that's the case in this too right yeah yeah and that's what so interesting about this film now that you kind of rooted that out i kind of want to like go write a thesis paper on it because it's like okay this is doing something that we don't normally see and another movie that this reminded me of another made for tv movie is don't go to sleep from 1982 with Valerie so much so yes i just watched that within the last year and did a podcast on it and so much of it yeah they've lost a child they're moving to a new place to kind of start again yeah Uh, and the ghost is a manifestation of the grief that they're feeling right it's really scary and really disturbing i'm not going to give away right now what happens in that movie in terms of some of the deaths and uh, but it shocked me yeah i watched it and it's a raw emotionally there's a really great scene between dennis weaver and valerie harper talking about because one of the things about that movie they don't do it so much here is that they're they're passing the blame to all the family members each one blames themselves and then they blame each other and that's how right. the ghost is able to kind of manifest itself oh okay all right yeah i and see that makes here, sense yeah here it's the that it's that ted is repressed it so deeply that it yeah. comes out this way that's what i was gonna say it's interesting because she does chelsea field's character may does say eventually she was like i miss him too i often miss him more than you probably do which is like Grief isn't a competition, but I've lost a lot of people, and I understand that feeling because grief ebbs and flows, and you pe- different people feel it different ways. And it's interesting because at the beginning of the movie, I thought maybe the boy had died a year earlier. And not that there's a timetable on grief either, but then you find out it's five years later. I'm like, oh, that's this is what I, in my mind, I thought like, this is this handsome, uh, you know, conventionally handsome, hunky you know, all American, quote unquote, looking um, straight white male who we, you know, are famously not encouraged to express any feelings in the world, you know, or cry or grieve. Right. And so it's five years later. I'm like, that's kind of delayed. Not that not that it would ever you'll ever get over the loss of a child, but it feels so fresh to him. And I'm like, oh, he's just been suppressing it for so long. And it's just now hitting him because he hasn't processed it yet. Like May has like the mother already. has. Right. Yeah, and that's how it's like they bring the birds is what they're suggesting. The same way Melanie brought the birds in the original. They're just using a different sort of way of doing it. And so I think that because Ken and Jim, they worked in both theatrical, clearly, and the TV movie format. But I think that they kind of understood this idea that television, uh, you and I have both talked about it, about the public versus the private. Yes, right? I learned I learned that from you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so like the theatrical takes on like how Bodega Bay is, I mean, it concentrates on certain characters and it's character driven, but it's like Bodega Bay, this is what happens to Bodega Bay. Here, this is what happens to this family, right? And right. so they're, they're, yes. they're boiling it down to the very essence, right, of humanity in a lot of different ways. And so that's what makes it's such a solid TV movie for me when I watch this and why I think I, if you're going to compare it to Hitchcock, you're never going to win. Right. Yeah. You know, but if win. you, yeah. yeah, if you take it on its own merits, like I kind of feel like if it had just been called Land's End, 
Agreed. Yeah, but they yeah, I'm sure the marketing they wanted to make it it's the bird sequel which sets up unrealistic expectations you know yeah it makes me think of um disturbia because disturbia is clearly rear window right and so like but they call themselves disturbia so we take it for at face value and that's a very good film by the way and um it's not rear window but it's very good and so like it's just you have to approach these films kind of at face value which i kind of feel like tv movies maybe we don't uh, for a number of different reasons. One, I can understand as a critic, and I've talked about this too when I've talked about slashers, is that slashers have a very definite blueprint. And so if you're a critic right. and every week you have to go out to in 1981 when, in the heyday and see <laughs> yeah. every slasher movie, they're all going to look alike to you if you don't have like a predisposition to them. And TV movies are very much like that as well. So like because the structure is almost always the same in every TV movie. And so like if you are, you know... Kevin Thomas for the LA Times, who was actually a great cheerleader TV movies, but, or Judith Christ of the TV right. Guide, you know, if you're yes. watching these every week, you're going to start to just see the formula, the formula, the formula. And it's sometimes it's hard to understand that the movie is doing something really interesting. So, what you've actually talked about just by watching it with really open eyes is that this movie is uh, kind of flipping the script and saying that men mourn too. And that when we're forced to suppress it, it comes out in these really negative ways. Like he's getting hurt. Nobody believes that he's actually getting hurt from an outside force. Right. And he's, it's like his own form. It's like his yellow wallpaper. It's his form of badness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I also want to point out, I was speaking earlier about how good the actors are in this. And we also have James Naughton playing um, Frank? the boss at the yeah. newspaper. And just to go into a little like plot uh, stuff, like she somehow got this job at a newspaper, I guess just for the summer to update his tech or whatever. And James Naughton is immediately just homes in on her and is like wants to be with chelsea field with no regard for the fact that she's fully married with this this husband and she doesn't reveal later when she reveals later that like yeah my husband's a little checked out because we lost our son and but chelsea field plays all of this so well and um but james not the character is written so uh kind of sleazy and horny and just like getting on in there it's crazy but he i love him as an actor i think he's so great he's great you know i'm gonna defend james naughton's character in this um i do think he's kind of i do think he's a little predatory um and i do think he has honed in on the fact that there's something missing in her life uh, particularly the physical affection from her husband yes by the way if i could just be completely honest when she first goes into the office i'm like okay you go to work every day with him and then you get to go home to that all right her life is perfect so. i know <laughs> also the very first shot when she goes in the building it's just a seashell shop and i'm like she's changed her life up to go work at the seashell shop this summer i'm like no it's just in the same building as the as the newspaper yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um um now I totally forgot what I was going to say. Oh, but so the thing about James Naughton's character is that I actually think that he put he puts the brakes on when he realizes it's not what she wants. He's reading all that's the signs true. wrong. He, and, yeah, he says, yeah, I thought that's what you wanted. But like, uh, I mean, I don't well, think he, she, in my no, opinion, she He defends Ted as well, right? He says... She says, you know, our son died five years ago and he's just not handling it very well. And he said, I wouldn't either, you know, right, and, that's and true. That's I don't true. think I don't think he's a completely like black and white character, which I really like. And, and he, he, one of the great things about TV movies, Agreed. again, is that 
sometimes the villain now we have a villain here in doc rayburn but sometimes oh, the villain is actually the doctor slash mayor <laughs> turns out to be awful it's a small town but the uh yes. the, the bad thing often turns out to be nature and not somebody trying to like ruin things and and that's a very particular specific thing that happens on television so like movies like hurricane that's the one that not hurricane um heat wave that one always comes to mind and there's a couple others where it turns out it's the it's nature that's the villain and all the people are actually trying to band together to survive to figure it out yes yeah. yes absolutely and, yeah and that's one of the great things and so i think james naughton's character is not necessarily the a great wonderful guy but he's also not evil and so and also he's out there on the island there he's probably knows all the ladies he's very excited by this new person coming to town you know he she's she's smart she's talented she's gorgeous she's you know capable um he's just you know trying to get his i guess and then he does wise up and he does do good things at the end too well also all she... right she's a just so she's not on screen right now but just because we're talking about her chelsea field was a solid gold dancer i saw that in the notes i couldn't believe it and you know i knew chelsea back when i worked in commercial really? casting and she would still come in for commercials sometimes and she was um i worked in for the audience i worked as a commercial casting assistant associate for years as my day job before i was just an actor um for a really great guy named mcdowell and she was friends with my boss and when she came in because she has this because she was already, you know, a working, successful actor who didn't really have to do commercials. And every once in a while, she'd come in because the money is great in commercials to audition. And she had such an air of, like, glamour and stardom about her and celebrity. I very much remember I was always very excited when Chelsea Field was actually able to come in to audition for something. She was exciting to be around. <laughs> I oh, just that's to great say to that. hear. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to briefly point out that the lighthouse that we're looking at is only 46 inches tall. Okay, that blew my mind. Go on, because yeah. I didn't know that till after, till you sent me the notes about it, and I, it's so well done, I feel. Yeah, it's the, photography in this movie is so beautiful. I can't, I can't overstate it. And actually the first scene that we see Carl at the lighthouse, it was earlier, they had to shoot it several times because it, the way they shot it, the shadow of his fishing pole kept going across the lighthouse so and funny. screwing up the perspective. And so they had to like figure out how to do that. And it was actually used in The Butcher's Wife. I can't remember if I mentioned that. And they repainted it and they found little bushes along the coast and they lined the bushes around the lighthouse. So at the end, if we're not able to comment on it when it happens, when they when we're at Carl's death, um, they actually did that in a studio and they built a set that was only half of the lighthouse and then they had to keep replacing the mirrors so that when he would look like he was on the other side that the yes. mirrors hadn't broken yet right and, and the, the windows hadn't been smashed out by yeah. the birds yet yeah. also if we don't get to talk about it when we're there my favorite shot in this movie is at the end where the birds are circling around at night at the lighthouse mm -hmm. light and how it it turns yeah. around and shines on them it's the coolest shot i hope I hope that was in the trailer because it was really cool. And on this tip, I wanted to say a little personal note. Like, I have a lot of family in Wilmington, and this was shot um, in Southport, which is just south of Wilmington, North Carolina. I've been there a few times. And you take the ferry over to Baldhead Island, and there's a lighthouse called Old Baldy. So when I first saw this, I'm like, oh, they'll use Old Baldy, that lighthouse um, down there. But they didn't. And so I was like, where is that lighthouse? I think I certainly would have seen it when, because every, almost every summer we go to Curry Beach or Carolina Beach or Wrightsville to be with family. And um, 
And then Fort Fisher, where this is also shot, there's an aquarium there. And we I've been to that aquarium. So I personally and selfishly loved this is very since I haven't been able to travel back there in the last year and a half. I was so excited to see all this. And it's so beautiful. But I'm like, that explains the lighthouse. It is a miniature and a damn good one. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing the way they filmed it. Yeah, so when they originally... So they did some location scouting. And like I said, everything at the beginning, at least, was really fast. They only spent three days looking for locations. And wow. Rick Rosenthal was not that happy with where they ended up. Because where they were in North Carolina, there wasn't beach. So they had to go outside of that to the outer banks and he said he was able to find things that were perfectly suited but that was not what he had in mind when they were setting up the film and as a matter of fact when they asked him to make the film um he sent tons of notes to the producers and i'm not sure he was expecting them to uh agree to all of them but right. they did and um you know, it wasn't like a film he pursued. It was something that came to him. And Got he was also was kind of considered the king of the sequels as well. Because I guess for me, Rick Rosenthal is best known for directing Halloween 2. Oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and, all right. And that's Great. my favorite of the Halloween sequels. And, um, and he, I think he understood what he was up against because that was a Carpenter classic already by the time he made a year or two later after Halloween. He was already making a sequel to a classic film. So I think he, I think that might be one of the reasons why they approached him, you know. I wonder, do we know specifically why he took his name off? Yeah, apparently there was a lot of editing problems and I think some story problems. Because like I said, they brought in a third writer um, at the end. And I, I think it didn't go the way he originally envisioned it. So he had said, we've been talking about the technical prowess of the film. I think the story may have come in second. Because he said that uh -huh. for him, yeah. it was building images and then figuring out what to put in the image in terms of the story. So, well, yeah, yeah. Go that ahead. I well, no, no, I was going to say, in terms of editing, there are, um, forgive me, birds to colon lands end. There are a <laughs> few editing mistakes in this that were so glaring to me at the first watch that I kind of gasped. That I'm sure that any, that I'm surprised were left in. And I would understand if the director would see that and be like, oh my God, they let that stay in and my name is on this thing. It's like really easy. Like there's one where the girls are... The, when she, uh, May is about to go off to her job for the first time and the girls are standing up and they, they cut to May and they cut back to the girls and they're sitting down. And then there's another one like that when, when Scout, the golden retriever, is eating the chicken under the table. There's other things, you know, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, it just, it was a troubled production. I mean, we can't not face that, you know? <laughs> right. But... Well, everything has its little flaws. It doesn't mean we don't love it. <laughs> no, of course, of course. And it was interesting you are talking about North Carolina because um, at the time that this was made, North Carolina was becoming a hub of filmmaking. Yeah. And actually because of this TV series, Matlock, it turns yes. out. Yes, they yeah. shot Matlock there with Andy Griffith because he was they... a North Carolina native. Yeah, Yeah, they did. And then it brought Dawson's Creek, One Tree Hill came, and they yep. started shooting movies. As a matter of fact, there, and I don't have a list of any of them, but there were a lot of TV movies that were shot. In That's why they call Carolina. it when I'm there. In they call it Willywood because of all the production. Do they really? And, yeah, yeah, Willywood, and that's um, there's no sign on the mountain because there's no mountains in coastal North Carolina, but um, it's also where they shot Blue Velvet. And yes, I lived I lived in South Carolina, just in Myrtle Beach, south of of here in the late eighties as well. So I, I was aware of all the, you know, production that was going on in the movies that were made there. 
Yeah, the, one of the uh, guys from uh, Blue Velvet that did the makeup, and I think it's Jeff Goodwin or Jeff Goodman. Um, he did the uh, the eyes pecked out. So good, yeah. So yeah. creepy. Which was mostly an optical effect with some darkness around the eyes, and um, and the scene where Carl's head is supposed to look smashed in at the end. He did yes. a very simple trick that he used in Blue Velvet, where he put like towels underneath the actor so that the head kind of goes back. And then oh, it's meant to look okay. it, the way they shoot it with the perspective. It makes it look like it's caved in, and Ooh, and actually creepy. the uh, the uh, makeup on the eyes was protruding out. But the way they shot it, it made it look like it was coming in. So like, there's oh, like a, the bus, the, like the bus at Haunted Mansion as you as you go by. Yeah. Them, they're actually yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Also, I want to say on that same tip in terms of the Carolinas, there's also a really wonderful. Um, uh, well of actors there, which I think from what I read about him, the man who plays the mayor was, you know, a local actor and who worked and you look at his IMDb and it's just like all these, you know, uh, Matlock well, and everything, that, that rec that all the stuff that was shot there. And he's wonderful, you know, and I'm sure a lot of those actors, like the, like the nurse, I love her with the short black hair. I love her. She's local. Like they, they were really good. Yeah, so uh, uh, the mayor is played by Richard K. Olson, and he was actually like a vaudeville performer as a child. Wow. And, yeah, and he performed in USO shows. And then um, he started doing... Was, I'm only bringing this up now because you mentioned local actors. So he was known for doing regional theater in the 60s and 70s. Um, I believe at the time he was in Pennsylvania. And um, he was in really like... Um, what do you want to call like hoity-toity productions, right? He was in Waiting for Godot and A Streetcar Named oh, Desire. Wow. And he directed plays like James Naughton also directed theater. He directed plays like The Glass Menagerie and Death of a Salesman. And he showed up on a local Pennsylvania program uh, to to play a, the the average life of a policeman in a, in a locally shot show called Anatomy in Blue. But then when he, I guess, moved to North Carolina, he would play different characters all the time on Matlock. I was looking at his filmography and he's got all these different names under um, that that oh, series. So it wasn't the same character. He did a lot of good he for him. He just came back and forth. But 1994 was crazy for him because he was also in The Road to Wellville, The Radioland Murders. He was in a TV movie called The Moment of Truth Caught in the Crossfire. He was in the Twilight Zone, Rod Serling's Lost Classic TV movie, where, um, the, where the Dead Are was the name of the segment he appeared in. And he was in a TV series called The Road Home. And that was just 1994. Dang, know? that's a great year for an actor. Good for him. Yeah, and I bet a lot of that was like shot there you know in oh, north yeah, carolina yeah, that's why i think he lived there and that's it was his home base so that's why he was always working there yeah yeah it's good for him and uh, and since we're here on carl so i hope i get his name right but it's jan rubish i think is how you pronounce it he was actually an operatic singer from czechoslovakia who emigrated to canada and wow. he, he sang several different languages in, in Italian, German, English, Czechoslovakian, obviously Russian. He was also a tennis and ski champion in Czechoslovakia. And he um, he came here and he just, I don't know how he got into acting, but he would show up in a lot of different things. Um, I think the year he made Bird Studio, he was in The Mighty Ducks. And he's wow. most famous for being a witness. He also appeared in The X-Files. He was in The Amityville Curse, which is another sequel movie. And um, a year after he did Birds 2, at the age of 75, 
he actually starred in his first Broadway play. He was in a play called 12 Dreams that played at the Lincoln Theater Center. Um, and so he was just really coming into his own at this age as an actor. It gives me hope. It gives yeah. me hope. <laughs> I love yeah. to hear it. He's wonderful in this because he really plays that part of the creepy fisherman until he shows up with that really monstrous fish that he's holding that I have want nothing to do with. Um, but he's cleaned it for them. Like, who knows how he cleaned it, but like you still got to cut it up and cook it. So we don't see what happens there, but I guess someone knew how to cook it. Cause I was like, that is a giant fish. Yeah. Also we've got um, him respecting the older daughter's uh, personal space. Yeah, well, she's like, gives him the hand yeah, instead of the kiss. And he's like, yes, ma'am, I that's you're right. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, I think that that's actually a really kind of sweet moment in the movie. Though I had a feeling just because I am a old hand at these, like he's going to turn out to be a good guy. When you see him at the beginning, yeah. and the girls are like, Rah! yeah. And that's one thing I want to say is that these two actresses, um, the youngest or I should say the oldest one, she this is her only screen role ever that stephanie milford played jill um she uh, she might have done theater but i couldn't find anything of her other than this film and then the littlest one joanna is megan gallagher and uh -huh. she's done several things over the years uh she showed up in justice in a small town the same year she made this that was a tv movie with kate jackson but uh, to their credit uh the writers and the actresses that play the little kids they are very tolerable um, yes. Yeah, young children in TV movies and theatrical movies are, are you're walking a tightrope with me. And so uh -huh. they Same. did a really good job of playing very realistic kids that love each other and sometimes hate each other and do everything together and they're sisters you know and, and they, also have to endure some really scary scenes with actual birds and attacks and also they have a realistic and easy um um authentic seeming relationship with the parents as yeah well. absolutely well so brad johnson actually has eight children um what yeah he is Damn the boy father of eight children and i have a feeling that he's just really good with kids yeah and that also might play into why he's so good at playing the grieving father in this because somebody who's as into children as him as an actor if you can put yourself in that place yeah true that's probably yeah. like a, a place that he could reach maybe better than other actors you know so yeah. uh, you know i can just see where the layers are coming but i wanted to mention real quick with the we missed it but when the uh, carl's walking by you see some birds flying by and the birds and the actors were actually about 20 feet apart from each other that's right oh okay but, but they changed the perspective to make them look closer and uh, they did just a really good job with the technical aspects of this film. I agree. When I read, we'll do more of this later at the end, but I was very, um, uh, when I read afterwards about uh, in the notes that they used almost all real birds yeah. right there, I was blown away. Um, you could have knocked me over with a feather, if you don't mind the expression. <laughs> but I was like, and then the way they did it all was just fascinating. And those were all trained birds. Almost all of them are trained birds, except for some of the pigeons. And it was remarkable. It really is. Yeah, they actually tried to catch wild birds by throwing popcorn in the air to, to kind of get them to come to the scenes. But they, they just ended up using Gary Giro, and I'm hoping I'm saying his last name right, was the guy who brought the birds, like the bird wrangler. And he actually ended up working for the guy who shot the birds a year after they made that film. And so he, he worked for him. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. So he was an apprentice to the actual birds man. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
And so he, he was really well trained by the time he got to this, but he also was saying he had a very short time to get all of his birds together. And it turns out miraculously enough, you're looking at all of these birds. So Hitchcock used approximately a thousand birds in his production. They only used a hundred. And Rick Rosenthal said that it was very challenging because uh, they couldn't use more than 75 at a time for whatever reason. Wow. And so they had to shoot it in specific ways to make it look like there were more birds. But of course, you only need one really evil bird, which is coming up here for Egbert, who's the. Yeah. Just a really evil bird luring. Who, it's Egbert <laughs> himself, you mean? Yeah. Well, because he's luring them right to open the door so that the birds can come in and attack them. And it's like it's he's just he's a he's a Bond villain as far as I'm concerned. Listen, they, they put him in a cage. Yeah, a I know. tiny cage. He was not happy about that. Um, I don't know. You know, I was like Team Egbert at the beginning. And then like <laughs> when he courts the disaster, I was like, it wasn't clear to me exactly that that's what was going on. Well, we'll see it eventually. But like, yeah, he like, so he disappears. But I thought maybe he was dead. But was you he... know, they're throwing birds into a grave at the end. But I, I, there's a back and forth as to whether or not he was luring them. So there were there was a Fangoria or Cinema Fantastique said that he was an evil bird luring the kids oh. like, to the, but at the also at the end i think uh, when they're burying him he says something like why did they kill egbert so i think i'm stuck on the article but i think he actually was trying to warn them i um, i think he was that's just my decision that's my yeah, i think my, right. my take <laughs> i guess i'll go back and i guess i'll uh, forgive egbert but i like him just, being a bond villain. justice for egbert justice for egbert <laughs> So when you talk about them using fake birds, they only used three puppets in this entire film. They had a raven, um, a seagull, and one other bird. And I can't remember what the third bird was, but they used, it was all puppetry for them. And that's what you kind of see attacking them here is the puppets, but everything else was real birds. And it was actually, they said, really easy to do. So it'd be more so for the outdoor scenes, but for something like this, what they would do is that they would open the bird cages and like however many feet away on the outside of the camera would be another cage and inside that cage would be a treat. So the birds would fly to the treats. Yeah, so you, you had to make that shot though, like it's pretty. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on how far the distance is, but yeah, I, I the more I read about what they, how they did everything, the more impressed I am with this movie because birds aren't, not that, not that all dogs are easy, but like, um, they just seem like they'd be more difficult to wrangle than a dog because they could just fly away and never come back. <laughs> yeah, know? he was, Jiro, Gary Jiro was saying actually that the birds never seemed to want to go anywhere except from cage to cage. I think because they knew that they had a meal coming for them. Exactly. It's about the yeah. food. It, just like with me, it's, it's, it's where's <laughs> the food. Yeah. I also, because in the original birds, there were a lot more, I feel like a lot more process shots of, you know, however they do that optically with laying over a film of birds on top of the of the already shot footage of like you know the schoolhouse or the the rod taylor's house or the town but in this there's doesn't seem to be that much of that going on am i right yeah you're right there's one scene where it's clearly like a bird kind of superimposed or matted over the scene and i think that's a tribute to the original birds yes. but they they went ahead and just were like okay we've got 100 birds and let's just do what we can with it and one of the things they did so one of the things that Tippi Hedren talked about for Fangoria was that it was horrifying making the bird scenes because she thought that there was going to be more puppetry or more special effects involved. And they ended up tying a lot of live birds to her. 
and she got hurt in the in the original the birds. in the original yes. yeah. yeah yeah and here and of course you know she's an animal rights activist now and i'm not sure that yes. that played its role but it sounds like it did but here they they actually tied birds to actors but they were fake birds and so they were very I think those puppets are really good when i found yeah. out those were puppets i was like they are you know puppets of they were good yeah, well and so made. they were really specific not to harm any animals during the making of this, including Scout, who was played by a dog that came from the bird wrangler named Luke, and he was four years old. Oh, um, he's so cute. Yeah, he's adorable, and he comes from the same uh, trainer. And so he brought all of these animals up. He said, like I said, he was given eight weeks to pull everything together. He had to get them from California to North Carolina um, in one piece and um, and have them train for this. And, and he said the most difficult aspect of it was actually... So, uh, so he he got the birds used to people running and screaming, oh, and so that I it you, wouldn't. I guess you'd have to do that so they yeah. don't freak out. Yeah, so they don't freak out. But he said the hardest part was getting people to volunteer to run around the birds and scream before they'd been trained to be used to it. And That's so funny. So he needed people, just friends or whoever, to come over and volunteer to run around a yard screaming in front of a bird. Yeah. I so, mean, I'd do that for money, but not for free. But I think I think it's funny that the people were harder to train than of course the they birds. Are. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they spent a lot of time when their limited time schedule really piecing together like these great like i said rick rosenthal envisioned it as like he said that he used more storyboards on this production than anything he else he'd worked on and um and so he he really like thought really hard about how can we make this look like birds are really doing these things to people you know and he did and a the, great job some of these were like we're the one where brad's like trying to knock the birds out of the girl's bedroom like he's really swinging around with a towel hitting so those birds, I mean, they like got hit probably, you know, I, I, I don't know how they couldn't have. Uh, you'll have to ask Gary Jiro because I think that they, <laughs> they did what they could to like kind of keep them from harm's way. Of course. No, I'm not saying yeah. that they were hurt, but I'm like, it's very well shot and very convincingly shot. Yeah. He also said that, uh, Jiro said that, uh, pigeons stood in for seagulls. So I think they did use some goals, but it was mostly pigeons that you're looking at. Yeah. In, in the bedroom scenes. scene, those are definitely pigeons. Those yeah. are all pigeons. The pigeons are damn tough as anyone who lives in yeah. the city knows. <laughs> yeah. He, he was, um, he was saying that pigeons are actually really easy to train. And so they came over as juveniles, but all the other birds he'd had since they were just babies. And he kind of trained them from birth. From birth. Oh, so that's how he they had that kind of control over them. That yeah. makes sense. And they went through about 50 pounds of feed a day. And they had some hawks. And the hawks had to eat meat, which totally horrifies me. I don't even want to think about it. Yeah, um, that's, you know, <laughs> that's kind of yucky. Yeah, so so anyway, there was a lot of care put into the, these bird scenes. By the way, we were talking about this scene before we started recording. So if you notice, when we first see this bird, he's pretty tiny. And then when uh, when Ted yes. shows it to Carl, it's like three times the size it was. So it's becoming like one of those atomic age birds. Yes, it's incredible. The opposite of the incredible shrinking man. Yeah, so talking about this movie feeding into some kind of like cultural climate. So if the films of the 70s were about environmentalism, um, this is kind of 
uh, taking a nod to that because I went ahead and I looked up oil spills and I couldn't find them Ooh. by year, but I found, you know, or by decade. But I found that in 1990, there were 8,177 oil spills. What? I had yeah. no idea. That's disgusting. Yeah. And so this movie is clearly making a very subtle comment on it. It's doing a couple different things because I'm talking about how the family brings the birds and it's a manifestation of that. But it's also when they went into it, um, the filmmakers were thinking of it more as an environmental comment, but they were very quiet about it because the way they film it is they really just show Carl with these kind of oil slicked dead birds. Yeah. And there's an oil slicked dead bird at the very beginning too, that he finds the guy. Yes. Out on the, he, and but so I thought it leads you to believe that maybe there's a oil spill nearby, but like, there's not so it's just sort of like the birds are pissed because you're ruining their habitat they yeah. have every right to come and get you because you messed with where they live yeah it's it's very subtly introduced by the way there are the place is it called the title bar i'm trying to forget it's the name of the restaurant from the birds this is another nod to the, the birds. tides the, I the think. tides tavern yeah the tides a, tavern yeah yeah as a nod but like so th it's interesting because i watched a movie to compare to this one that came out in uh 2000 called uh they nest with thomas calabro and it's a bug mm. it's a bug attack movie and it's interesting because it actually ends the exact same way as this film does including the capsized boat interesting what kind of bugs are they they're well they're made up bugs there's some kind of beetle that doesn't exist but I, I don't know what kind of bug they used but they're horrifying I don't want them in my house they're big and Ooh, they mutate yeah they mutate in the film and it's a really fun movie but one of the things that struck me is that this town is definitely more idyllic but there's a working class vibe that's going on here that I love and in They Nest it's really working class and one of the things they're talking about speaking of environmentalism is that the town is so poor uh, because the fishing industry is sort of they've sort of been fished out like the water has gone bad and the fish have left or died and so okay. they're having a hard time making money. None of the people on the island can really survive. Here, they don't tap on that as much. Here, it almost feels like a, a tourist trap. Yeah, more like a cutesy tourist town. Um, or, you know, I mean, cutesy is the wrong word, but more like, you know, charming yeah. tourist town, which Southport and uh, Baldhead Island, all these places are um, where this is being shot. And there are some fishermen, like the guy at the bar we see earlier, who they're like, you don't fish because, you know, you're drunk all the time. But they do comment on the fact that, like, there's so many birds out on the ocean, which usually indicates there are a lot of fish because birds go where they're going to catch fish yeah. to eat. And he's like, yeah, the birds are out there, but there's no fish. And they make fun of his, his drunkenness. But I think he still has a point because clearly something's up. Right. I also, we're not there yet in the movie, but, like, I found it um, interesting that being such an aficionado and a fan of the first the birds is they do reference this like oh something like this happened 30 years ago in a town called bodega bay in california and at the end of the original birds it's you are led to believe that the birds are going to you know get from bodega bay into san francisco and the mainland to take on every human being but so we are in a world where that happened, which I thought was interesting. We don't find that out till the end. I was wondering if we were, we were in the same universe, and we are, but clearly it kind of neuters or negates <laughs> the threat at the end of the original The Birds because it was so, you know, not much bad stuff happened after that, you know, or we, yeah. they'd all know about it. 
Yeah, it well, was it's interesting. interesting. Hedren actually said uh, that she, uh, Hitchcock, had considered having the birds go to San Francisco at the end, like shooting something to indicate that they had gone. And here they, they fully, they realize it more when they're like, they're heading for the mainland, which is exactly yes. how they nest, not to be too spoilery. There's this idea that it's gone into the city. And, um, and that's well, there's a, Jurassic Park. That's a, a bunch yeah. of things, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, uh, I just don't know how many people have seen they nest and I, I want to recommend it because it's so good. And it's, it was a, Pay, basic cable TV movie. What what was it on? Like what what year? I'm, I want to watch it's, it. It's from 2000, and it was um, uh, it was originally aired on the USA Network. Oh, okay, USA. And, okay, got it. And got so, it. if we're going to talk a little bit about the history of uh, pay cable and basic cable in this era, so uh, Showtime and um, HBO had already been producing original content for several years before they got to the birds too. Um, I think 1982 was the uh first year that they produced their own original content both hbo and um uh showtime and, and the first okay. showtime original was called falcon's gold also known as robbers of the sacred mountain on vhs with simon mccorkendale and it's Ooh. you know it's your indiana jones whatever and it originally aired on <laughs> december 18th 1982 and but they made it because they knew that they could release it theatrically outside of the united states and which was completely their intention and hbo and they kind of set this really interesting blueprint so what hbo would do so they were looking back i talk about how these films look back um so the networks in the late 60s and early 70s, when they were kind of figuring out what to do with their programming blocks, they would show a lot of theatricals, right? They were right. popular. But then the studios were like, okay, well, now we want this amount of money for the license. And it, they were starting to like outprice what the networks wanted to pay. And so the networks were like, wouldn't it just be cheaper if we made our own products? And then we would own it and we could show it whenever we wanted. And we could also, we didn't have to edit it. And so like, let's just do that. And so the, the studios almost forced the TV movie to be creative uh, as a business decision. So what the networks would often do is that they would hook up with studios like Universal was a big one. And then they would budget like some of the money themselves. And then they would tell Universal to pay the rest. And HBO okay. was doing that, right? And so what that allowed HBO to do was have some creative control over the content right so that they yes. weren't just outsourcing it and then saying just give us something they were like okay we need this and this and this for our subscriber no, base. yeah we're getting yes right notes 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 we will be giving yeah. you notes and you have to take them <laughs> yeah and so it's interesting so in the early days i found an interview with the president of showtime named mike weinblatt and he was really specific that they even though their first film was an indiana jones ripoff he said we're not doing genre film he said quote you will not see mother was a teenage prostitute on showtime <laughs> which is ridiculous because i would watch that movie 10,000 times so i don't know why i would say that <laughs> she's a mother and a teenage prostitute yes as <laughs> as the network started to grow they were relying heavily on genre films uh, like they did uh, body bags with john carpenter's body bags the year right, before this yes. they I did this that era of showtime yeah, yeah. yeah in in 1994 they did rebel highway which was a series of tv movies produced by lou arkoff who was sam arkoff's son and wow. they remade a lot of these 50b movies deborah hill was also one of the producers who worked with john carpenter and oh yeah she's amazing yeah. And, she's amazing yeah and so they were heavily leaning on genre leaning so heavily that lou arkoff wanted the series not to be called rebel highway he wanted it to be called raging hormones <laughs> You're no joke. Kidding me. No, oh that's what he God. wanted. And so they were looking back on genre and the TV movie had really 
kind of created um, a really great structure for TV genre films in the 70s, you know, and, and they yeah. were basically like, if you could think of a subgenre, we could figure out how you can make it for television. And they did it. And so by the 90s, and when you had more freedom, so there's there's no nudity in this. There's a little maybe in her white uh, nightgown on the beach, a hint yes, of skin. Yes, the wet, yes, the wet yeah, nightgown, but, yeah. But there's really nothing in this. This could play on any network at any given time oh especially now yeah yeah was it red shoe diaries also showtime wasn't it like yes. erot erotic anthology yes. i never saw it but that was yeah showtime oh, was so kind good. of borderline skinamax there for a minute they were but they were doing the really good stuff you know like i would argue that higher end oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i'm not putting it down i'm just saying <laughs> i really like the pilot to red shoe diaries i think it's fantastic and um yes yeah, showtime did produce that i think they understood their audience you know and you're right they're leaning heavily on like exploitation type stuff but it's not completely exploitation because there's a there's a, a craft here we're seeing right and and we saw that in yes. a lot of tv yes. movies Although I think the networks, so we're looking at the budgets also from these films. So like in 1983, when they first got in the game, um, a network TV movie would cost about $1.8 million to $3 million, but averaged $2.1 million. The pay cable movie were budgeted $1 million to $4 million, but they averaged $3.5 million. So they were putting a little bit more money into right. You their, can see it normally. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so the, they play a little bit more, uh, they're more filmic or cinematic. Well, if they're only shooting from four to eight 30 every day at all these, uh, outside locations, that's a long shoot and they're on location in terms of the actors who most chiefly probably live in LA. That's, that starts to add up, you know, cause a lot of the ones I know from the seventies that I am used to covering, they shot some of those in 12 days you know oh, three yeah. weeks maybe and this is definitely a longer shoot which is more money yeah and they only spent like a quarter of a million dollars three hundred fifty thousand, maybe um oh, yeah there's is, a, is that in the 70s is yeah that the 70s 70s yeah oh interesting okay yeah so like there's a movie called deliver us from evil um that stars george kennedy and it's amazing and um um he did an interview to promote the film and he said that they got 18 days to shoot it and if you ever watch that movie it's all outdoor i don't know how they did it in 18 days it it's mountain climbing it's an adventure film it's action what and year is that it's from like 73 or something like that and sure, it's an, probably seen it at some point yeah yeah it's okay. an abc movie of the week it's fantastic but it's like it's like what they had to do. So you're right. I feel like this movie, it feels like everything had got a fast turnaround, but I don't know about the actual production shoot itself, but everything prior leading up to it was well, real. And speaking about those movies with the short, uh, the short schedules, look at Duel by Steven Spielberg. That oh. famously was shot, I think, in 12 days. And of course, it's just mostly Dennis, mostly Dennis Weaver and a truck and a car. And then he, when they released it theatrically later, because it was so good and did so well, and it's such a good movie, um, he got to he got to shoot a little bit more stuff. But that was like you you can't believe it was shot in like twelve days. Oh no! And by the way, if you're watching Scout here, so when they were uh, Scout was attacking that bird, it was a stuffed animal bird, and um, Gary Juro said that basically they just played with him like they played with him every day, and so this is him oh, actually having a good time. I was wondering about that. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Okay. Because it looks pretty gruesome the way it's shot. Like it yeah, looks it does. Rough. This is a this is a rough scene. Um, 
so it's rough yeah. But I do want to talk about, I normally do this with network films, so it's, it's a little non-traditional, but it, I like to talk about what these things ran against. I will say I couldn't find a Nielsen rating for this, so I don't know how it did, but I can tell you about the night it aired. Um, what I will tell you is that it premiered on March 19th, 1994, again on Showtime. It ran against on ABC Step by Step, Hanging with Mr. Cooper and an episode of 2020. On NBC, it ran against a really great TV movie called Eyes of Terror, which starred Barbara Eden. It was the sequel to Visions <sighs> of Terror. Which, that sounds you know, amazing. Yeah, I need to watch that. I love Barbara Eden. I do, too. She's a psychic psychologist. Of course she is. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. I, I, tonight. I'm watching it tonight. Yeah, they're so good. <laughs> and on CBS was College Basketball Game. And then at this point, we already had Fox. So there was an episode of The X-Files. So it must have been a Friday night. Um, so it was um, Miracle Man was the name of the X-Fall episode, which was uh, an episode where the agents investigate a ministry led by a man whose son possesses the power to heal and to kill with the touch of his hand. Mm, I um, remember that one. Yep. Interestingly enough, this movie premiered in March and they, they ran it by the MPAA in April and it got an R rating. So they must have been thinking theatrical at this point after the yeah. television premiere. Um, and so uh, Showtime made this an event. So one of the other things um, I made a note of is that as they're looking back at what the TV movies of the 70s were doing, they started to kind of like if they're advertising these in the theater, they're like, these are events. These movies are events. And so they yes. built an entire night around birds too so here i pulled this from a newspaper in pensacola florida so this is what they wrote showtime plans to get as much mileage out of its night with the birds as possible hosted by hedron saturday night is dubbed now and then the birds wow, at 8 p.m cool. there's the birds too lands End, followed by hitchcock's really scary the birds at 9 30 then present then we're presenting inside the birds a 15 minute behind the scenes look at how both movies were made and so that was just an entire evening that they were like, okay, I have to come in. It's the birds. You know, they're going to just have a whole night of like birds killing I would have, I would have watched that 100% if I had Showtime at that time. Yeah, and the, <laughs> the trade ad was ridiculous. And it's hard. We're doing a commentary, so I can't necessarily, like, people can't see it. But it was this really beautiful black yes. and white. Gorgeous. Um, Ad, full page ad with the tagline imagine the terror that lies ahead and it has these like a, it's like a hawk or something coming down with his mouth open and a bunch of dark birds behind him and it's got this kind of it's not gold lettering because it's like muted yellow and it's just this really beautiful ad and it's like they really marketed this like you would market a TV movie from the 70s. This is like golden age right. stuff that they're looking yeah, back yeah. at. Yeah, and it's amazing. <laughs> and I love them for doing it. I love them for looking back and saying, okay, this is what worked. And let's not try to reinvent the wheel, right? With what yes. we're doing. And that's exactly what they did. Um, I mean, from the writing of the film to uh, releasing it. And speaking of the writing of it, we were talking about how fast it was to write. The two brothers who wrote it, they had a very crazy writing schedule so like they, what they said was that they had tons of conversations about the film before they sat down to write anything so that they kind of knew where they wanted to go and then they put everything on index cards so that they can move the index cards around right, and then yes, they wrote yeah. they had to write things separately because they had such a short uh time span and then they got together and then mixed everything together and, okay. and then they just churned it out in like two and a half weeks. And that's how they got the script that they ended up with. But they did say, so the Weep brothers were super interested in characters. And I would argue that they're fairly good at it because um, 
like the Stafford husbands, I think is doing something really interesting with the Michael Onkin character in there, but also Fly 2 is Eric Stoll's character is really pretty interesting. This idea of like that he's a yeah. five year old grown up, right? Falling in love for the first time. And there's a lot of uh, character driven stuff in that. And also, one of my favorite films that they made was Nightmare on Elm Street 4, which is so good because. Is that Dream Child or is that five? Which one? That's is that? five. That's five. Okay. Four is the one where we first see Alice. Okay, and, um, yes. And she uh, starts bringing people into the dreams. And. Um, and she starts absorbing the powers of her friends after they've died. They all give her a gift right before they die of something that right. makes her stronger. And that's why I love that movie because it's all based on like how you deal with the loss of somebody and how you take something from them. Right. Yeah, and then it becomes right. a part of you. Right. And so right. like, so I'm not saying that the, when they're writing this movie, they're like, Oh, we're going to write this ordinary people like drama. That's going to win Oscars. You know, they're not doing right. that, but they're, but they're definitely like, okay, what would be interesting about this family, you know, that we could have as like a dramatic aspect of the film. And they did a really good job incorporating that into the film. And, and Rick Rosenthal also had said in interviews that characters are really important to him. And so it, maybe it was a mismatch for the type of film it was for audiences in terms of there being so much family drama incorporated into it. Right. Yes. But, but they're definitely thinking about characters. And that's why when uh, we talk, uh, just real briefly, when we talk about James Don's character, that's why I seek the gray. Uh, yes, I agree with you. And like all these people have rich, full lives for, especially for a genre film like this. And, you know, we learn about the mayor, we learn about the life of, you know, of um, Carl. We learn about, you know, yeah, James Naughton's character's life in Vietnam and all he has this whole story. And yeah, it's, it's really well done. Yeah, I just, I love the way that this movie has been kind of fleshed out. And, um, but I do want to tell you again, it wasn't well received, so I'm just going to read a few reviews. Okay. Um, so they got reviewed in all the major. This was a big movie. Um, so Variety wrote a review of it. They said, 31 years ago, thousands of ticked-off gulls ominously perched along the Bodega Bay telephone wires in the closing shot of Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. At last, someone has decided to dust off the old Universal franchise. Hitchcock and Brian De Palma being unavailable at the moment, the task fell to mm -hmm. another veteran. If anyone decides to mount an Alan Smithy film festival, this wouldn't be too embarrassing a centerpiece. After all, haven't industry observers been noting for years that Smithy's work is strictly for the birds? Oh, uh, yeah, womp womp. yeah. <laughs> they all use this joke, by the way. Kevin Thomas of the LA Times said the birds, too, is no Hitchcock classic. It's pretty much for the birds. It's a routine reworking rather than a sequel to Alfred Hitchcock's 1963 classic. The film is decently, though unexcitingly acted and has good special effects, but it lacks suspense and tension, crucial for a story so well known to so many viewers in the first place. I might agree with him in the sense that we were talking about how there's no feelings of dread leading up to... That's true, yeah. Yeah, and that might be where they get the sticking point. Uh, Miles Beller of The Hollywood Reporter, again, sequels are for the birds. Sadly, this maxim... <laughs> they can't resist the pun. No. They can't resist the easy pun. Nope. Sadly, this maxim is true, literally, as well as artistically, in the case of Showtime's The Birds 2 Lands End. Tom Shales of the Washington Post said Birds 2 turned out so badly that the director with Rosenthal has had his name taken off, replaced with the generic pseudonym Alan Smithy. The first Birds was not for the faint of heart. The new Birds is mainly for the faint of brain. Or oh, bird brain. Ouch. He didn't even say bird brain, did he? Um, and then... <laughs> 
And then I really like this one. Ed Bark of the Dallas Morning News says, as an art fern might say, as art fern might say, Gregory Peck, Robin Givens, Wings Hauser, Woody Woodpecker, and Mia Sparrow star in oh. the birds too. No such luck with the Showtime version featuring Brad Johnson, Chelsea Field, James Naughton, Tippi Hedren, and Jack Reel as the dead game warden. Um, he does have a name. His name is Gordy, but I guess the press materials. Yeah, they say it a lot. Come on. <laughs> but, um, yeah, those were like the, I think the Kevin Thomas review was the most kind review I could find of the film. Um, and through the years, because it hasn't really had a great home video release, it's, it's sort of, its legacy has sort of lived on. Oh, yeah. So no one's been able to revisit and re re review and, um, yeah, yeah reevaluate and, until now. Yeah. And I'm hoping that the audience for this is kinder to it now because I think TV movies, well, TV movies are in a really interesting spot in where we are living in the new millennium because as people who have this kind of technology where almost anything is at our fingertips, one of the few things that's left lost is the TV movie. And so cinephiles have become really obsessed with finding everything because everything is available. And that's when, me. I get yeah. it. Yep. I yeah. And so it. when you find something that you, that you know exists, but you can't get a copy of it, it becomes really alluring. And TV movies have really come into their own in the last decade because of this. And it's been kind of a wonderful moment for me as a TV movie fan to see that because movies that like for instance are you in the house alone is a great example of a movie that when it was released uh, and it was released on home video a couple different times so it has kind of been able to live on but it was marketed as a horror film and it's more of a drama right and right. about a girl who gets raped and um yeah. and people who would review it would be like oh this is horrible this isn't a horror movie but now <laughs> There's right. this people now that people have seen everything, they're like reassessing these films and they're going back and they're like, oh, my gosh, there's this great TV movie that came out in whatever, 1978. And look what it's doing, you know, talking about uh, sexual assault by somebody that, you know, like date rape, basically. And yeah, here's how yeah. it's handling it. And so now with this this different culture we have for approaching films, and I know think pieces have their pluses and their minuses, but this idea of looking at everything sort of at this different kind of face value has allowed these uh, films to get um, new respect. And yes. so this is, I'm hoping that this movie, I'm not expecting people to be running out after they watch this being like, oh my God, I just saw the best movie in the world. But to appreciate what was happening when they made this film, because I think even though Rick Rosenthal was pretty disappointed with the end of it, um, the, his heart was there. I feel like these filmmakers mean to make good films, and they do their best with what they have. Exactly. When you, especially when you find out the the budget limitations, the schedule limitations, the location limitations. You're like, yeah, they did. You know, that's another thing. And and I acknowledge this a lot in my podcast because I like lovingly, uh, you know spoof on and rag on a lot of the movies from back in the day but it's more about like things that could have been easy fixes and but then what i do acknowledge is that like you know it's not easy ever to get a movie made it's a it's a huge movable feast with a lot of moving parts and a lot of luck and synchronicity to go into being able to pull something off so when you look through any not that any you know, Joe Schmo audience goer needs to think about all that stuff. But like, 
you know, once you know how the sausage is made, like me, you're like, wow, they did a really great job with what they had, you know? Absolutely. And so we're here at like the big climactic scene. Yes. And one of the things yes. that I don't think we have mentioned about how they shot this was so um, Rosenthal had, you know, the extras running around as the birds were going from one cage to the next. But actually, after the birds got to their second or their final destination, he would have yeah. the extras continue to run around screaming. And the extras were like, I don't understand why you're having us do this. There's no birds. But he wanted quick cuts, right? Yes. So he yes. could edit them in, in in different ways. And so the people had to run around without the birds. And I don't. I think they didn't fully understand why they were doing it. Well, also, if they're people that are local, hire extras, and they're not used to being on sets, or like, or things aren't explained well, yeah, it's kind of like, what's going on? Yeah. But like, you have to trust that there's a there's a reason. Yeah, I really like Doc Rayburn's death, by the way. And oh, it's delicious! I wanted it to be even worse. I know the, the fact that he thinks he can jump on that boat. <laughs> what? And, you know, by the way, we haven't mentioned how much this movie owes a nod to Jaws as well, because oh we have the evil Oh, my God, yes. The evil mayor, mayor who's like, we need tourists. How dare you outsiders come along and tell us to shut down this? Yeah, yeah. a lot of Jaws in this. And also Jaws, too, because that opening scene on the boat makes me think of the um, the woman with the skier in Jaws, yes, too. Yes, completely. Yes, yeah, because yeah, but... her body washes up on shore like his body does as well. Completely. And yeah. also there's this idea of the haunted hero is what Lee Gambon called uh, Sheriff Brody. Yeah, in, Roy Scheider, yes. Yeah, true. and you see that yeah. here as well, right? Somebody who's trying to come to terms, right, with something. And, yes. um And since we were talking about, like, um, families coming in um, and bringing the evil with them, that was sort of prevalent in some of these movies that happened in Strays in 1991, another USA original. There was a movie called right. Deadly, yeah, Deadly Invasion, The Killer Bee Nightmare uh, from 1995 with a Matlock alumni, Nancy Stafford, um, who I'm obsessed with. Uh, and um, they uh -huh. nest as well. He comes, it's about, Thomas Clover plays a doctor in a major city who's been told to take a vacation because he's not doing so good at his job. And he shows up at this little town where he'd bought this house with his wife who had since divorced him. And he's going to remodel it. And then all of a sudden the bugs come. But also the bugs have come. He's like the manifestation of it. But at the opening scene, there's actually like a boat where somebody's already been infested because the bugs get inside you and they dump them overboard. And that's how they come into this little like idyllic island that Thomas Colabro is staying at. And so one of the things I thought about is that these films are also like heavily commenting on xenophobia. These right, outsiders, yeah, the outsiders right? coming in. Yeah. yeah. And they're bringing these bad things. And that would become more prevalent actually in, after 9-11 in all kinds Ooh, of horror movies right, right? like the strangers um as yes. a really xenophobic like the bad thing comes to them like you no matter where you go the bad thing is coming paranormal activity does it um there's yeah. uh, also in a in its own weird way um um open water does it as well and so like these are starting to hint at where horror is gonna go in like the next decade you yeah. know of course, we couldn't have envisioned 9-11 at that point, no. but but it, it became like a stepping stone in a lot of ways. And it's always small town America that gets kind of taken over in these films. It's never like we like we were talking about the end of this film and the end of supposedly the birds and the end of they nest is that there's this idea that they're going to the major city, but it never really starts there unless they're leaving the city to go somewhere that's supposed to be, quote unquote, safer. Exactly. And also being from a very small town in a rural area in West Virginia where people 
will call people from the other people from the next county over foreigners or imports and just the xenophobia of that where that starts in these you know and i'm not bashing at all but i'm just i witnessed and lived through this where in these movies you know uh as well in as in the minds of these actual townspeople um in real life it's like the outsider is you know the small town is idyllic old-fashioned America, whatever that means, this wholesome white like idea that people have of like what America should be. And then again, the outsiders are, is the emigrant going to come in and ruin America? I mean, I think those are the levels too, in terms of like what that xenophobia is speaking to, you know? Yeah. Well, it makes sense in this film in a lot of ways because Doc Rayburn doesn't like Carl either. And Carl comes clearly from another country and he talks about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The crazy old fisherman with the, with the slight, very slight accent. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, believe me, I know those people. I grew up with them, and they get the guns out um, to shoot at things when when they don't like what's going on or they don't understand things. Yeah, so it's like a, it's a really interesting commentary. So this movie's doing. We're wrapping up here, but this movie's doing several different things that I think are seem not obvious. They're subtly done, but they you can see them if you want to, and it's completely exactly. up to you. It has you know, a lot more on its mind than at first at first glance. Yeah. yeah. And the great thing about horror movies in general um, is that they can be watched as a piece of entertainment or they can be watched as social commentary, as so many of them are saying something. Yeah. Or yeah. something, you know, about the morality or, you know, like the slasher films. Or well, like so many, like especially recently with films like Hereditary yeah. and others, that it's, it's a meditation on, or a parable or meditation on grief and loss. Like yeah, so many of those that I and I've covered in my podcast from the 70s or the more recent movies, um, Midsommar, like so many. Um, I'm just just thinking of that same director for Absolutely. some reason. But like this is also like how you're dealing with grief and what will pull you out of grief. And what it is, is taking care of your loved ones against other assaults, you know, because mm. you, you have to pull it together and come to get for the for the greater good of the family and the community and move on, um, not from the memory of the person but in terms of your own mental and emotional health that's what i get out of things like this perfect yeah that's a great way to end this because that's exactly how i feel about this film too and i'm so glad that you were here to help me root out all of the stuff happening in this <laughs> film and again my name is amanda reyes and um i'm the editor and co-author of are you in the house alone a tv movie compendium 1964 to 1999 and the co-host of the made for tv mayhem show and I am Sam Pancake. I'm an actor and comedian uh, in L.A. And I host the podcast, Sam Pancake Presents the Monday Afternoon Movie. And you can find me on Instagram or IMDb or wherever you want to look to find out more about me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Bye.